Grace on Fire, episode 83. Grace Nation, you've waited an entire week. Get ready for another power-packed episode of Grace on Fire in 3, 2, 1. What's up, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. I probably should update that says you've waited two weeks for that. Thank you for waiting. It's awesome to be back here with you. Go ahead and grab some coffee, your lattes, your headphones, whatever you need. This is going to be a good one. And hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, a.k.a. the Reverend Dr. Smitty, and I am your online pastor. And my goal is to help you craft your life for a higher purpose so that you don't settle just to live life, but to endeavor to thrive in everyday life. And the key, of course, to that life is understanding the massive power of God's grace working itself out in our world today. And on today's show, I am circling back to the area where I'm a subject matter expert, and that is answering the question, which I think is the defining question of the century, if not the past two, you know, the last century and this century. And that is how do we understand God's grace working itself out in the subject area of homosexuality? And, you know, after I just got to say this after several years of reflecting, administering and learning, I think that one of the questions that I needed to answer as I was beginning to move into this area is, you know, why does it matter to me? And I got to tell you this, that sometimes that when I begin to talk about this with other people, there's always this fear, I think, and I noticed it was a fear among my friends and in my family that perhaps it was I was struggling with this at some point in my life. And the truth of the matter is, is that my struggle has never been with same-sex attraction. I've not been one of those uh, guys who, you know, this was a, a fundamental attraction for me. That was not my issue. I'm going to tell you why this matters to me, because after really wrestling and thinking through this, that what I finally have concluded is this, that if we don't get the gospel right in this situation, if we don't get the gospel right in this situation, then how is it possible that we can have any certainty that we have it right in other areas. Now, I will tell you as a self-disclosure, if you're listening to the show, that I have my own areas of sexual brokenness. I mean, all of us do. And you'll note that as we work through this and I get to the conclusion towards the end of the show, I'll unpack more of that for you. But all of us struggle with this issue, that this is a human issue. In fact, that one of the things here that I want us to fundamentally understand is that this is the issue of our day. Uh, to, to, so to start off the show, let me just give you some. Uh, let me just give you a quote that comes from Oliver O'Donovan. And uh, Oliver O'Donovan is a Christian philosopher. He's at the I believe he's at the University of Edinburgh. I think he is. Um, I'm a hundred. I'm, I'm I'm like ninety nine percent sure that's where he's at, but I could be wrong. And um, Anyways, but he writes in, 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 a, in his book, and I, and I don't have the uh, title up in front of me, but I have the quote. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. But this is what he writes. He says this. He says, the world has never seen a phenomenon like the contemporary gay consciousness. There have been various patterns of homosexuality in various cultures, 
but none with the constellation of features and persistent self-assertion that this one presents. And so it's not surprising at all that evangelicals have wrestled and have struggled with how to respond to this consciousness because there's really, I mean, honestly, there is no uh, there is no um, plan. There's no program out there that has been written for us. There's, we can't go back into church history and say, when we saw this expression, this is how we should respond. And unfortunately, I think that there's too much historical reactions, which have led to hysterical reactions, instead of looking biblically at this issue. We, we've, we've gone through and we've done all kinds of exegesis. We've looked at it. We've exegeted our culture. We've exegeted people. We've exegeted all sorts of things. By the way, exegete means to interpret. It means to pull out, etc. And and we've done all of that, and yet we've missed the fundamental fact. And the fundamental fact is we're dealing with people. We're dealing with human problems. And so uh, O'Donovan continues, and he, he continues this way. He says, it does not matter whether we suppose this society and its emotional forms will be short-lived or long-lived. The point is they are of our day. They constitute a horizon of our mission. In other words, here's, here is why I say that the gospel is at stake. If we attempt to, to dismiss this issue by either ignoring it or by becoming recalcitrant in it, or even worse, becoming dogmatic and, and almost hysterical, as I was talking about earlier about it, then what we are actually doing and what will actually happen and what is at risk is successfully successfully communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ in our culture. And so this is where I want to start with this that what is what is at stake here is the gospel and what is even more at stake is the mission. And so I want to start with us there because I think that it's so critically important that because when I say that our understanding of the gospel at stake what I mean by this is our understanding of grace forgiveness, sanctification, and, and what does it mean for a person to be in relationship with Christ? And how of all of that is it impacted, you know, on how all of that impacts us when our sexuality is compromised, okay? And I think that that's what's so important. Never in the world, never in the history of the world has pornography been so prevalent and so readily available? I mean, we carry around little devices that at a whim, at our, at our whim and the search, we can pull up all kinds of, of stuff, you know, to whatever to satiate our appetites and our desires. And so we've got to come up with new categories and new ideas and fresh understandings of the gospel in order so that we can appropriately respond to the brokenness that we're seeing. And ultimately, let me just say this much, that as you listen to the show today, there is one group of people that I do wish to offend, and that is the Pharisees of our world, the Pharisees who want to continue to project out negative rhetoric and isolate certain people and certain people groups because they're offended or scared. Well, I want to suggest to you something that when that happens, that when legalism is is working itself out that we are missing the point and we are missing the gospel. You know, I mean, let's stop and think about this for just a moment. Sometimes we talk about sexual identity. What is that really anyways? I mean, how in the world, I mean, how in the world would you even say that I've come to this sexual identity? 
I mean, as I was growing up as a, as a boy, I, 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 I'm not sure that I those concepts were even in my mind. All I knew was that I was attracted to girls and I really liked them. I couldn't explain why. I certainly wasn't thinking about my identity. Those are all things that happen as we become adults and we begin to formulate and we reflect and to think. And then some scientist comes on and starts giving us categories to work with, etc. But what is it anyways? You know, sometimes we fight over words and we fight over uh, definitions and we fight over language. And I just want to suggest something that when we start getting down into that nitty gritty detail, that we are forgetting something. And that's this fundamental truth. When it comes to human sexuality, these are human problems. All right. And we need to remember that these are human problems. All right, so let me just kind of set all of this up for you today, because this is what I've discovered. I have discovered that human sexuality is complex. It's, it's fraught with uh, competing interpersonal and interpersonal factors that leads to all kinds of attraction, preference, and expression, so that if we get the gospel wrong in this situation, then my theory and my hypothesis is this we don't actually understand the gospel at all. So in order to set the show up for you today, here's what I'm going to do. I've given you a pretty long introduction because I'm hopeful that if you've listened to me in the first eight to 10 minutes of the show, that you're going to listen to the entire show. That there may be some times when I get upset with you or you might get upset with me. I'm sorry, I'm not going to upset with you. Uh, I don't even know how you're responding if you listen to the show, right? But if um, you're finding yourself getting upset with me or saying things, can I just ask for your grace on this? And so, let me, because this is my heart. This is where I'm coming from. I am desperate as a pastor to answer the question, how do I apply God's grace into this area? So on today's show, here's what I'm going to do. First of all, I'm going to, I'm going to set this up in street theology in my segment with street theology, and I'm going to talk about what I call the link between ethics and knowledge, because that's actually one of the issues that is here, right? Is it morally wrong to feel attraction to the same sex, okay, or to the same gender, All right? Is it morally wrong? Uh, and then what I want to do is I simply want to give you a tip of the week. And my tip of the week is probably going to surprise you, and you're probably going to ask yourself, how is that actually uh, related? But I'm not going to give it to you yet, so you're going to have to wait and see and listen to the, the show. And then we're going to get back into this uh, um, topic here in the feature presentation. And what I'm hoping to do is to just simply explain to you why I think the gospel matters in this subject. So it's a packed show. I'm hopeful that I'm successful in all of this. And so now let's get started as we get into some street theology today. Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is Theology on the Street. And on Street Theology here on the show today, as we look at this subject here, one of the things that I'm going to suggest to you is that mere belief isn't enough. You know, when I was in seminary, one of the very one of the things that I did, maybe because I'm a geek, maybe because I I'm 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 obsessed with knowing and, and learning. Uh, it's actually one of my core character strengths um, is the love of learning. So I just love to learn about things. But one of the things that I did was I took a course in epistemology. Can you imagine that taking a course in epistemology? But I loved it, and I took it with um, I took it at it. No, that's probably a, a terrible. I took it at it. 
I took it with a, a Christian philosopher, John Frame. Now, if you Google John Frame, I mean, there are those who love John Frame and there are those that hate John Frame. I love John Frame. John Frame helped me so much in so many areas. Is he a bit dogmatic in a couple of places? Yes. Do I fully agree with him on everything? No. But his epistemology, his way of understanding the world, the way that he understands knowledge has been extremely helpful to me. And it's been extremely helpful in terms of how I've thought through this issue when we talk about um, sexual identity, etc. And so, one of the things that we have to realize is that in the Bible, knowledge is ethical. That is to say that if you say that you know something, the Bible assumes that it's going to have an impact on your behavior. In other words, there is no abstract knowledge that is capable in the Bible. The Bible says if you know something, then you will act upon it. If you know that something is right, then you will do it. When you know something is wrong, then you will not do it. It's not just a theoretical you know, idea. This whole idea of theoretical knowledge really developed in academics in between the 16th and 17th century, okay? And, and probably more so in the 17th century as the development of the academic institutions took place. But to understand the Bible, you have to understand that when the Bible says that you know something, it means that you act upon it. So what Frame says is that ethical knowledge deals with how we ought to think, feel, or behave. Whenever you say something ought, this is how you ought to believe. This is how you ought to think. This is how you ought, this is what you ought to say. You're talking about something that is fundamentally ethical. So that at its most basic understanding, all right, ethics in everyday life is how we should behave, quote, on the street. This is why when I talk about street theology, all right, and this is why when I when I when I do these segments on street theology, that fundamentally this is what I'm saying is this is how you ought to act in the situation that you find yourself in. Okay, so you know, listen to John Frame. Okay, so John Frame is is saying this, and he writes, "Ethics is theology, and it's viewed as a means of determining which persons, acts, and attitudes receive God's blessings and which." do not. Okay? Now, let's stop and think about that, okay? Think about what he just said. Ethics is theology viewed as a means of determining which persons, acts, and attitudes receive God's blessings and which do not. Now, if we were to take persons, acts, and attitudes, all right, and we were to kind of blow that out and begin to talk about sexual identity, you can immediately understand where the issues come up in terms of ethics, right? You can immediately understand where all of a sudden semantics becomes very important. You can immediately understand when uh, evangelicals say that certain types of behavior are, are, are wrong and do not receive God's blessing. You can immediately understand why we get so riled up about this, okay? So according to Frame's um, definition of ethics and theology and knowledge, that ultimately all knowledge is ethical. And he says this in several of his books, and I have a tendency to agree with him on this, as it lives, as it works itself out in everyday life, okay? We're not talking about, um, you know, what I would consider abstract ideas in epistemology and technical uh, philosophy, or analytical philosophy, or all the different kinds of philosophies out there where, you know, that just goes on and on and on and on. What we are talking about is 
theology and knowledge as it relates at the street level, what you do say or how you feel in everyday life. And I want to say to you that that's so important because that's that's ultimately what's happening here. Is it wrong to experience attraction to the same sex or isn't it? Is it wrong for a Christian say, hey, I'm gay? Is that even wrong? And what does that even mean? You see, these are deeper details that sometimes what we do is we just assume we assume too much in these words that we throw around, and we assume that too much is happening, and then we forget about that there is perhaps communication that's failing to take place. There's actually messages that are that are being absorbed by the other person, and all kinds of inferences, etc., are starting to be developed. And so it's very important that we get this grounding that whenever we say something is right or wrong, that ultimately what we're doing is we're making theological statements, all right? So when we discuss ethics, we are really discussing how we should act in front of Jesus. That's basically what we're saying, all right? If Jesus were standing and having coffee, coffee with you, you know, what would you do, right? Not what would Jesus do, what would you do? How would you respond? Because it's this idea going back to frame is what person's acts and attitudes receive God's blessings and which do not. And to receive God's blessings is ultimately an issue of God's grace. That's where all of this is tied together. So, say another way, if Jesus is walking down with me the street, and suddenly a homeless man asks me for some money, you know, how would you respond? You know, if you're there in your car, and you just, all of a sudden you feel resentment, you don't want to give any money, what would you do if Jesus was standing right there next to you? Would, you? would you compulsively just pull money out because now you feel like you ought to do it because Jesus is standing right there? Jesus would look at you, give money. Would he look at your heart and say, oh, out of your heart, you didn't want to give that money? So what would you do? Not give the man money because you're trying to be consistent with your heart? Would Jesus look at your action or would he look at your heart? That is such a difficult question to answer, is it not? Because not only is our attitudes involved, but our actions are involved, etc. So we have to understand that biblical knowledge, when we talk about all of these things, is not morally neutral. And so we must understand then that ultimately what we're talking about is that there's a there's a link between faith in Jesus and ultimately holiness. And holiness, I just simply define it this way, is how we would respond if Jesus was standing right next to us. And so we get into these problems and we we get into all kinds of issues and we we get into all kinds of rhetoric that I don't believe is very helpful. But I want to suggest that the starting place for these conversations, when we really get into this, we must realize that knowledge, ultimately, the biblical knowledge, ultimately is ethical. It ultimately shapes our values on how we're going to think, feel, or behave given our circumstances. And now for Smitty's Life Hack Tip of the Week. And that actually brings me to my tip of the week. And my tip of the week is the value of, of, of daily Bible reading. And um, one of the things that I've, I've really endeavored to do on this show over the last you know, couple of years is to continually to come back to you and say, get in your Bible, find a reading plan. If you go to BibleGateway.com, by the way, they have all kinds of reading plans. It's so simple. 
to do. It's, I mean, the tools are out there. There's all kinds of tools. I happen to use uh, the Faith Life Study Bible. You can download that on iPhone. I think they also have it on their Android. You can set up daily Bible readings uh, programs just on your phone. And I mean, they're just fantastic tools out there today. But what does the value of daily Bible reading, what it does is if you can actually work through the entire Bible, is that it's going to give you some broad definitions of what the Bible is really about and what the Bible isn't really about. And what you're going to discover is the issue of humanity in relationship to God. And that's why I want to just continue to come back, that particularly in the area of sexuality, that one of the benefits of reading the Bible all the way through is that when you look at human sexuality, you're going to see that it's fundamentally broken. It's fundamentally broken. And everybody, all of humanity, including the church, including the elect people of God in the Old Testament, ancient Israel, and including all the pagan nations who didn't even call on God, that if there's anything that is consistent that the Bible speaks to, it's this. That is, is that human sexuality is fundamentally broken. And now it's time for our feature presentation. And that brings us to our feature presentation. And and I wanted to work through this point, but I, I had to establish the other two points, okay? I had to come back and say, look, I'm working off a framework in street theology that says that anything that we say about knowledge, anything that we say about the Bible ultimately has an ethical and a moral implication. That is to say that when we're talking about the Christian faith in terms of sexual identity, that there is no morally neutral ground. That is to say that over and over again, no matter what we say, when we define right or wrong, when we define all of these issues, that we're talking about what is going to receive God's blessing and what does not receive God's blessing. And the truth be told, I just have to tell you that there is there is so much on the stake. There's so much at stake here. There's so much um, that matters that we evangelicals really take the time to work through this because the gospel is at stake. The gospel matters. And if we don't get this right, then we're fundamentally going to have an entire generation that could potentially reject the Christian message because we didn't take the necessary and requisite time and energy to work through this. And I just want to say this, by the way, I am not pessimistic about this. I'm actually excited. Um, my good friend Bill Henson with Lead Them Home Ministries, I did an interview with him on the last episode. And, and you know, I, I honestly, I, I was really thankful for that because Bill is, I think, one of the frontline uh, thinkers on this leading the way. And, and Bill reports that, hey, we're making great, great uh, impact, great inroads in the church on how we can shift from moving from an ethical argument, which, by the way, I'm not dismissing ethics, but moving from ethics to mission, all right? Mission always outflow, is always the out, um, always flows out of ethics, okay? Once you understand what receives God's blessing, then you can actually move into mission. And what Bill is trying to say is, hey, look, we've got the gospel. The gospel applies uniquely to everyone. The gospel... Uh, 
applies to all persons and human beings, and that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. He loves to uh, quote Romans 2, 4, and I think it's true. And such were some of you talking to the elect people of God. Such were some of you, right? Um, that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. By the way, that reference and such were some of you uh, does not come from Romans 4, 2. In fact, you know what I'm going to do? Because it matters to me so much. I'm actually going to read Romans 4, 2, or excuse me, Romans 2, 4 to you because I think it's so important that we get this right. So let me just pull it up. I'm going to Bible Gateway right now and I'm looking it up. Here we go. Romans 2, 4. And it doesn't like my reference. So hold on. Let me just go back and do this correctly. This is what it says. It says this. Um, or do you have contempt for the wealth of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? And yet, do not know that God's kindness leads to repentance? Let me read this whole thing into context for you, because I think that it's so important. So this is what he writes. Therefore, he was, uh, what's the therefore? Paul is writing here, and he's writing to the Christians in Rome. This is what he says. Therefore, you are without excuse, whoever you are, when you judge someone else. For on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself because you who judge, uh-oh, practice the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment is in accordance with truth against those who practice such things. And do you think whoever you are, when you judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you have contempt for the wealth of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, and yet do not know that God's kindness leads you to repentance? You see, what he's saying here, and what Bill's point here is that ultimately we are all equal under the foot of the cross. Why? Because we're all broken. We're all fundamentally broken. And that's what I mean that the gospel is at stake because what we evangelicals are so good at is we are so good at sanctifying and whitewashing ourselves and then turning around and saying, you LGBT people, how shame on you, blah, 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 how awful you are. Not realizing that every time we gossip, every time that we tell lies, every time uh, that we murmur, every time that we complain, all of those things that we do that we judge that we're condemning ourselves. But even more radical is this, that we are living a hypocrisy. You know, I, this, this, this hypocrisy, is just, um, it just so freshly came to my mind, and this is what it is. When you look at the rate of pornography consumption of evangelicals compared to those who are non-evangelicals, it's, it's surprisingly similar. In fact, it's one of the greatest, I want to suggest it's this, it's one of the greatest, greatest marks against the evangelicals, that the guys who will condemn LGBT plus people will turn around in the privacy of their homes in the dead of night, and they will consume pornography. Why? Because they are so radically addicted to it. And and yet we will sit there and point our fingers at this. We need to realize that this is hypocrisy and we need to repent of this hypocrisy. And we need to realize that we are judging ourselves when we are judging other people. And that's why we need to understand that when the gospel, if the gospel is going to apply to the pornographer, the pornography consumer, does it not equally, does it not equally apply to someone 
who in the uh, the passions of his heart was driven to have sex with the same sex person or with the same gender doesn't that isn't there any room here that we can look at all of this and say this right here is grace and we're going to err on the side of grace that does not mean that we go in and we begin to affirm etc all that other stuff that we get all caught up gate weddings etc all that nonsense that we get so focused on what i'm actually just saying though is that for the person the person who desires to have faith in christ but is experiencing these passions does grace not apply and the answer is of course it applies of course it applies. Let me tell you why I'm so passionate about this and, and really why it's become a passion that's been stirred up again inside of me. About, let me give you a little bit of history. About eight months ago, I was involved in another ministry and, and I transitioned out of that ministry and I realized that I was feeling myself burning out a little bit. And I couldn't, I honestly, I couldn't tell you why. Um, there were some things happening to my family that really precluded my involvement uh, in extra and in extra things. Um, and so I needed to just take some things off my plate. I'm still trying to do that, it feels like. Um, my my church was going through some some transition. And so I literally just decided to take a break. I even pulled a bunch of stuff off my website for a little while to take a break and to just simply to reflect and to think. And as I uh, begin to, con- as I continue to privately minister to individuals and families, um, that became less and less because I began to speak about it less on my podcast. And, you know, that's just how it works. That's how marketing works, right? You don't advertise much. You don't uh, put yourself out there. You know, your opportunities decline. That's just the way it works. And so, um, but I had a friend of mine and um, his name is Alberto and I love Alberto to death. And he kept meeting with me and he kept having lunch with me and he kept asking questions and come to find out that um, come to find out that he himself was being confronted with a bunch of um, uh, young people that were having some real legitimate concerns and questions, and so he invited me over to his, his group of, of young people, and and this is this is what was so amazing about all of this. Okay, are you ready? Here were these 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 incredible you know you know handsome young people, and they had all these questions for me. I mean, they just had all these questions, questions about, you know, same-sex attraction, uh, sexual identity, pornography, and, 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 um, and everything. And, and these were heartfelt, legitimate questions. And, and I could tell that just by looking at them that they were all wrestling with these issues. And they were all wanting to know, you know, where is God and what does he view and, and how does he view the failings, et cetera? And where is grace and, and all of that? And so I, I, got, I got a chance to spend two hours with this, with this precious group of people, these, these young adults. And, and let me just tell you something. I just admire them that they would even have the courage to, to bring a crazy guy like me in to even talk about these things. But as we really just wrestled and talked, I could, I could just tell that, that they had all been impacted by all of this. And so as a result, you know, it reawakened me to the challenges that are confronting our young people today. And so I want to kind of talk to you a little bit about, you know, where I've fundamentally changed over the last eight or nine months. And one of the first things is, is this, is that I've become very sensitive to the issue of language. You know, um, one of the things I didn't realize was that I, I didn't even realize that language itself, you know, how I was communicating with LGBT people um, and, and with, with, with families, et cetera, was communicating ignorance and a lack of understanding of the realities that they were facing. 
you know, and part of that was ignorance and other part of it was insensity. Part of it was just baggage that I had carried with me from growing up during the culture wars, you know, of the 90s. And, and so I've had to shed all of that and I continue to have to shed all of that because pronouns matter. How we refer to people matters. How we show respect matters. Jesus was so massively respectful of people. I love how Jesus was respectful of people and yet still was able to, you know, to con- uh, confront them with truth. You know, even, I mean, if you think about how Jesus was respectful with people, when Jesus was standing before Pilate and Pilate was, was interrogating him, you know, Jesus did not talk down to Pilate. I mean, here was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and Pilate is talking about, you know, all of his authority, etc. Jesus engaged Pilate, even engaged him with truth, but he was still respectful. And this was the man who's, who Jesus knew was about to put him to a torturous death, and yet he still showed respect. When Jesus was confronting women who were sinful, women who, you know, the woman at the well who was sinful, he still showed amazing respect. The Syrophoenician woman, you, you, you might wonder about the, the interaction there because it doesn't seem like Jesus was very respectful, but in the context of that situation, I believe that he was. But Jesus' compassion and caring for people was remarkable, it was absolutely remarkable. And so what happens then is when we lose respect and we, we actually get caught up in, in language, then suddenly we're not being sensitive to how the other person feels. And so what, what, you know, so this is one of the areas where I've changed. The other thing that I've also changed is I've started focusing on individuals rather than communities, right? I'm not interested in having political debates with people about what's right and what's wrong. So if you want to listen to someone who, who, who's interested in those debates, I'm not your person. I'm not interested in political debates. I'm not interested in civil rights in terms of of what is, um, you know, what I as an evangelical think is right or wrong. Okay, I, I don't want to go into that. Why? Because I want to individual. I want to come in and talk with people. Now, if you give me permission, I will, but I'm not going to lead with that because I'm interested in communicating the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, no matter who you are. That's what I mean when we got to get the gospel right. So. As I'm talking with these young people, and I was talking with you know, the different individuals, there was this one particular um, young man, and, and he was struggling, and I've known about a struggle, um, and, and the, when I talk about struggle, the struggle is how do I integrate you know, my passions with my faith? And I want to say this, that, it, it, you know, and I'm not afraid to use the term, a lot of people don't like the term, I've adopted the term uh, in, in my own language, but there are there is a group of people out there that refer to themselves as gay Christians, Wes Hill, uh, who's a theologian um, at, at Trinity uh, Ambridge School of Ministry, or, or Trinity School of Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, he's a well-known um, theologian, and, and he happens uh, he happens to be gay, okay? Now, that's unusual because he's evangelical, and, uh, and Wes has written uh, uh, some, some good work, he's done some good things. But he refers to himself as a gay Christian, and I like the way that he does that, because all he's doing is he's saying, hey, these are passions that are inside of me, and I'm just simply using this word to describe what is happening. But I'm still committed to my faith. You know, those are some of the most bravest people that I know. The reason why I say they're brave, because not only are they, you know, publicly saying this, 
this is what I'm experiencing. But at the same time, I'm holding to a faith that I know is putting limitations on my experiences. I'm going to tell you something that is that is brave, particularly in our world today, particularly when we hear from, from different groups, even Christians, other Christians that say, hey, look, this is how God created you, and so therefore you need to act on that impulse. And you, so then you have other Christians who are saying, no, the Bible teaches clearly that human sexuality is limited uh, in an expression between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. And so that there are some, uh, particularly, who are saying, and that's what we believe the Bible teaches, and therefore, regardless of how I feel, regardless of my passions, regardless of those things, I am willing to submit and live underneath that framework that the Bible expresses. Now, listen, I cannot tell you the 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 sacrifices that they're making. I can't even tell you uh, the fact that they are walking away from temptations, not temptations in the sense of the word to, um, you know, like the devil's tempting them, but in the sense of saying, I can go over here and I can adjust my thinking in order to fit what uh, my passions are. And I think that that's incredible. So these are some of the bravest people that I know. But they're also desperate, in desperate need for the church not to condemn them because they simply say they have these expressions, these, these passions. And far too often, we have, as the church said, no, 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 you shouldn't have those passions. You shouldn't feel that way. That's wrong. And, and, and that is going to lead to some things that I want to talk about today. So this is so my ministry and, and the things that I've been thinking about has really begun to evolve in my own mind is to is to simply say how do we do this how do we minister and why does it matter and the answer is is because the gospel is at stake you know I want to give you some thoughts here you know the church still has much ground to uh, to, to to make the church the church still has much work to do you know and as I've said before the gospel is at stake. You know, there really is, let me just kind of give you what I think are some defining issues here. So, I think the first defining issue is this, is, you know, how do we maintain the biblical teaching that sex is limited to the marriage union between a husband and wife? How do we do that? You know, um, the second one is why, why, and how do we even account for that same gender attractions even develop? How do we even account for this? Why does it happen? And is it even important that we actually answer the question, why? Should we just rather focus on what and how? And I'm actually beginning to believe that when we try, when we strive to spend too much time on answering why, we fail to address the what and the how. What do I mean this? What do I do with these passions? And how do I live in a life of congruency in light of the faith that I have? You see, we spend so much time and energy trying to answer the question why that we have failed to adequately address the what and the how. And I think that's important that we, till we recognize this. Um, and so, one of the things that I could say this, let me put it to you this way. You know, if, if a person experiences same gender attractions, are they somehow automatically more spiritually compromised than, say, a person with opposite gender attractions. Well, I want to set this up with an example, okay? 
there in my old church, um, in my old church location, not my old church, uh, in a, in a, the old location where my church used to meet. I think that's a better way of saying this. Okay, there was this um, picture, and it was a picture of creation. I think I've talked about this short uh, talk about this before on the show. This has become sort of my um, uh, iconic. Uh, 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 example of what I think is is broken here. It was a picture of Adam and Eve, and this artist, whoever this artist was, decided that Adam and Eve really needed to be have their bodies very well defined. And I get the idea that what the artist was attempting to do was to show humanity in its most beautiful state. In other words. Adam had these, you know, strong, well-developed muscles and biceps and shoulders and this, you know, you know, really, you know, big pecs. It was, it's kind of funny, actually. <laughs> and then Eve was this young, beautiful uh, girl who um, she was basically nude, but was covered up just enough so that genitalia uh, was covered. Her breast, you know, were covered by her arms. But you get the idea, right? It was basically Adam and Eve in their most beautiful form prior to the fall. That was what this artist attempted to do. But here was the problem with the picture, right? It was a huge stumbling block uh, for people. So I had, I can't tell you how many times I had comments on that picture. It got so bad to the point where I actually ended up just taking the picture down and hiding it in my office because it became a stumbling block. So let me give you what happened. I had two individuals in my church. One uh, was a man who um, really, really, really was was working through his sexual identity for the very long time um, before he was saved. He was in, he was very involved in the gay community. Um, his he, you know gay. Uh, and 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 he and he genuinely defined himself by that, and then he confessed Christ and began to put on a new identity as a Christian, but was still wrestling with these attractions that he felt. Okay, and it, and, and it's still an ongoing uh, challenge. And then he had, or excuse me, and then I had another man in my church who was heterosexual, um, straight as an arrow. But his big defining issue was pornography use. And so um, both of them came into my office at various different times. And both of them said, you know, I, 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 I love everything that you're doing, but gosh, that picture on the wall. That's what they both said to me. And, you know, the first man was saying the picture of Adam was a huge stumbling block for him. The picture now. The other man was saying, gosh, the picture of Eve, huge stumbling block for me. They both were having the same reaction to the picture, but the source of the attraction was idiosyncratic. I want to say that again. They both were having a reaction to the picture, but the source was idiosyncratic. One man was attracted to Adam. One man was attracted to Eve, and they both were struggling with the picture. Now, why do I tell you this? I tell you this because both of them were spiritually compromised, were they not? Both of them were having a reaction that they did not like. Both of them were having lust in their heart, which they did not want to experience. Both of them were committing adultery, perhaps in their minds, correct? 
So which is worse? The answer is neither. They were both equally compromised. But what has happened in our culture and what has happened particularly in the church is that we said that if a person has a same gender attraction, that they are somehow worse than those who have an opposite gender attraction. And we've created this, and, and, and unfortunately, it's come out of our desires to be biblical. It's come out of our desires in the cultural wars to maintain what we believe is the biblical message. But we have somehow inadvertently created second-class Christians who somehow are morally are more morally compromised than, say, the first one, or more spiritually compromised than, say, you know, the their heterosexual brothers and sisters. And, and this is what I'm saying. This is nonsense. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. And so I think that this is why this is one of the most defining issues, that when we understand the gospel and its clarity, that the gospel comes in and says, we are all broken. We are all broken. And so that we must recognize and realize. So that actually brings me down into what I think are the theological issues here. All evangelicals that I know, all of them, ultimately and believe in what's known as justification by faith alone. What does that mean? It means this, that, that when God, through Christ, looks at our sins, he declares us in the right. Or another way of saying it, not guilty. I don't like the not guilty way of saying that because we are guilty. We're all guilty of sin. No one is perfect. The Bible actually says that. But what it means is that the punishment that we should receive because of our sins has been taken care of by Christ. And therefore, because of Christ's righteousness, the Bible teaches us that because of Christ's righteousness, that it actually bathes us and clothes us to such a way that God declares us righteous before him. That is in right standing with him. So nobody that I know, no evangelical will deny this. But where I see the problem is, is in the matter of sanctification and holiness. All of a sudden, the issues of sanctification and holiness become the big issue because all of a sudden, that 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 person, you know, that that man who experiences attraction to another man, suddenly they are far in, more inferior than their counterpart who's attracted to a woman, and so we create these cultural taboos, do we not? And we actually want to even go far and say, oh, you know, that feeling that you have, well, that'll just go away. All you need is to trust in Jesus. Really? No, it doesn't work that way. And what we've actually discovered is, is that uh, sexual identity development and all of the, the implications with that that go on in a person's life and, and all of the background and all of the passions, etc., are very real. And just because you accept Jesus Christ doesn't necessarily mean all of those things are going to go away. And we don't even know why they even happen. And so this is really the issue, isn't it? It boils down to what we believe is sanctification. That is the process of a person growing in Christ and dying to self. A person becoming more Christ-like and becoming less sin-like. And what we do in the church, and the church has always struggled with sanctification, what we do in the church is we, we, we expect that a, a person who accepts Christ the very next week, all of their attractions, all of their issues, everything, blah, 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 whatever it may be, all of a sudden that's all clean. No, it's not. And that's ridiculous. And that's why we have to have the gospel. 
That's why we have to have the gospel constantly in front of us, reminding us of the grace of God, reminding us that Jesus is actually walking with us each and every day. In wrestling through and understanding, what does Jesus actually bless and what doesn't he bless? Where is human problems? Where are our failures? And how are we all in this together? We're all falling at the picture. And that's where I get so frustrated. And, and as I've begun to really get into this and understand this, that what I've realized is that if I don't see myself in the struggle that the LGBT person has, then I have failed to understand the gospel for myself. That is to say, if that I can't enter into the struggle of the young man who is saying to my who's saying to me, look, he says, I, I don't know why I have these passions. But at least I'm admitting them. And to understand the brokenness and the hurt and the pain that he's feeling. And to understand that I have those passions. I have passions for things that God prohibits. I do. I can't have those things. And if I'm honest, and if you're honest listening to this, we all have passions that God puts prohibitions on. And we can't act on them. And therefore, all of us, to some extent, experience limitations in our lives. We all have impulses in our lives that God says are sinful. And we all have desires to have these things expressed, and we can't. Why? Because God puts limitations on them. And yet we still experience them. Does not the gospel apply to that? And that leads me to why we, 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 we as the church are, as evangelicals, that we really need to begin to, to admit our hypocrisy and confess our hypocrisy. We as, as the evangelical church have been so quick to jump down the throats of, of the LGBT plus community. And yet we have failed to address the pornography that's rampant in our churches. We have failed to address that. We have failed to address all kinds of sexual issues going on in the church. And we have failed to confess those things adequately. And, and, we, and we have not been safe. We have not been a places of safety and community. We have not been uh, a places where somebody who is hurt and broken, who needs the love of Jesus, who comes in, and because they don't act or look the way that we do, we somehow suddenly turn them off. You know, beloved, I, I, that's what I'm saying, that if we don't understand the gospel and how it applies into these situations, we don't understand the gospel. And we have got to go deeper into this and mine the depths of grace into the areas of depths of brokenness. And we don't understand, you know, in some ways, we don't even understand how God even looks at us. And so, I, I want to say this, and I, and I just want to realize that ultimately, though, the gospel is good news for all of us. And the question is, how do we express this good news? And so, that's, you know, those are the questions. Those are deep questions. They're questions that... If we're not wrestling through with them, and if we're not really doing great, great, thoughtful work in this area, and by the way, again, I want to say this, thoughtful work is being done, but at the level of the church in in, in terms of, of the evangelical church abroad, we still, in my opinion, still have not overcome the taboos yet. And until we do that, and until we're willing to publicly speak 
speak into this and to speak message of grace and love and hope into these areas that we are starving people who are desperate and then need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that we're going to get it right? No, we are not going to get it right. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. You know, ultimately in my life, and and this was something that I learned from a professor of mine. His name was Frank James. He was a seminary. He, he's a very well-established scholar in the in the Reformed evangelical world. Uh, he's been president of seminaries, etc. And I remember asking him a question, and it has nothing to do with with the subject that we've talked about. But we were talking about women's ordination, and I had some some struggles, etc. Um, not pro or against, but I was just trying to understand what the Bible was teaching. And Frank just looked at me, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Jonathan, he said, you know, I don't have all the answers for you. He said, but if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of grace. In other words, if I don't know the answer to something, in other words, if I cannot be completely clear on what the Bible is teaching, I'm going to err on the side of grace. I do believe that the Bible is very clear in terms of how it limits sexuality. But there is a lot of stuff in there that the Bible doesn't speak about. It doesn't tell us why people struggle in sexual identity. It doesn't tell us why passions, same-gender passions, and, and gender dysphoria and all of the other related issues emerge. It doesn't, it doesn't go into detail as to why these things happen. All it does is it calls humanity into repentance and realignment to God, into true worship of God, and to limit ourselves, and to respect the prohibitions that God puts onto humanity, and to understand the holiness that he calls us into, and to the very best of our abilities through Christ and the Holy Power and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we live into that holiness. And so, as evangelicals, I think that it's incumbent upon us that we err on the side of grace in everything that we do, in everything that we say, and how we relate to everybody. Because if we don't do that, if we mess up on this level, I believe that we are fundamentally compromising the gospel. And I cannot think of a greater sin than that. And that brings us to the end of this message. Beloved, if you heard me come heavy-handed down on that last one, remember that we believe in grace. And even when we mess up the gospel, God's gospel prevails for us. And grace abounds. Beloved, thank you so much for listening. And God bless, and I'll see you next time. Listening to Grace on Fire, a Verb Creative Production. For show notes, links, and more, please visit mygracenation.com.